Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. We've talked about laboratory advocacy before, and you might think that's the job of professional societies, or what can I do? I'm just one person. My guest today is Angela Tomei Robinson. Angela is a medical laboratory scientist and laboratory advocate, and today we're going to talk about her career and some stories about ways she's advocated for the lab, some of which have had some pretty huge results, and then we'll talk about some ways that you could do the same in your own lab. All right, here's Angela Tomei Robinson. I've heard you say in other places, so you had mentors in college that helped direct you toward a career in the lab. Tell me that story then. How, how did that happen? It actually started in high school. I was thinking, I just love doing everything. I love learning, reading, writing, history, science. I wanted to be part of everything. And my guidance counselor and teachers in high school said, what about a career in laboratory medicine? So I thought that'd be interesting. I, I knew there were conditions in my family and diseases and friends and families that I wanted to know more about. So they told me to go into clinical laboratory science And they said it's a pre-med degree, but it's a degree also with a career. So when you graduate, you don't have to go on to medical school if you don't want to. And they also said, don't take basic bio, don't take basic chemistry. That's purely academic. And you're restricted with your options upon graduation. So clinical laboratory science that I investigated, it gave both academic and a clinical orientation with an internship and a lot of opportunities with careers. Again, when I got into college, I had great mentors because they were clinical laboratory scientists. They were adjunct professors, program directors. Then in the internship program, you had your clinical instructors, your bench techs, and they had me join professional societies very early. And you meet a lot through the professional societies. So mentoring was very important in my beginning of my career. This sounds like some advice that I could have used at the time because I did take basic biology and basic chemistry and ended up graduating from college with out any skills that were marketable. I'm curious though, did you, had you heard about clinical laboratory science before this time? No, I actually thought upon all the different careers I wanted to get involved in, maybe becoming a pathologist. You know, I was thinking of a doctor's doctor behind the scenes diagnosing disease. Oh, yeah. And I was investigating the laboratory, and that's when they said, well, if you have an interest in science and medicine, think about clinical laboratory science. And it was in my last year of my internship that, and I'm going to use science terms, I was absorbed by the laboratory field. I loved the microscope. I loved hematopoiesis, the maturation of cells. I was so intrigued with laboratory analysis. I liked the idea that we were aiding the doctor in detection, diagnosis, and treatment of disease. I loved all the laboratory methodologies. Um, The only thing I didn't like believe it or not, was the psychomotor skills. I didn't like pipetting, serial dilutions, aliquoting. It wasn't attractive to me. I was more of a cognitive individual. So I thought maybe I made the wrong choice in life. But then these instrumentations started and they eliminated the hands-on repetitive functions. So that I liked. I became so engrossed in the quality control, the quality assurance, the risk management, the laboratory information systems, because all these instruments were now interfaced with computers. So um, in my last year with the clinical internship, I decided not to go to medical school. I wanted to stay and, and be in the clinical lab as a clinical laboratory professional. Okay. So medical school was what you were considering at the time? Yes. And and then getting that experience there in the lab, that's what turned you kind of away from that. That's interesting. You know, I've talked to a, a lot of other people that say once they get into the lab, they, like for me, that's, that's what it was. I, I fell in love with the field just from getting that experience from being in there. And I think that's, that's important for a lot of people to see what it is. Definitely. One other point that what you were, what you were saying that it brings up that, you know, there is always more to learn in pathology and lab medicine. You know, you, you hear about the concept of lifelong learning and that's definitely the case in in the jobs that we do. Definitely. Yes. You're a hundred percent right. Now, you've mentioned this a little bit already, the the concept of mentors and mentorship. And these are important topics, certainly for lab careers. Yes. The fact that laboratory medicine is behind the scenes is a definite deterrent to us. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to increase applicants when you're out of sight and you're out of mind. Mentoring is so important. And it has been, it continues to be a serious, you know, lack of knowing and understanding among the public 
among the media, among medical professionals, among healthcare industry, uh, corporations, the government. They don't know who we are and what we do as a profession. I mean, if you look on Internet now, there's visibility with articles and videos that have improved over the years. So we actually do look very good now on YouTube as professionals. But most TV shows, most newspapers, even the education curriculums, they support the frontline medical professionals. They support the doctors and the nurses. So mentoring is so critical at the high school level, at the career level, and even in college level, and even a laboratory week publicity. You have to introduce students into this dynamic profession, and you have to also introduce the educators, the teachers, and the guidance councils, and even the board of directors at colleges to appreciate clinical laboratory science programs. And as for the students and educators, you have to also advise them of all the career opportunities that are out there. They don't even know what's available to them. So we have to support our clinical laboratory science curriculums on all levels. We need to support for additional curriculums. We're losing programs. We need to be gaining them. And then you need that availability of clinical internships. So mentoring, yes, is so important to develop students who become our laboratory colleagues tomorrow. When I was the administrator at a local hospital, I worked very closely with what's called a project shadowing program. We brought in high school and college students who wanted to see what does a PA do? What does a pathologist assistant do? You know, what do the surgeons do? Uh, what does a laboratory technologist or technician do? And by shadowing us, a lot of them gained interest at the high school and college level to pursue this career. Yeah, that's a very important. Like I, I was going to ask you, like a lot of people, and, and this is probably true, like we should depend on our professional organizations, our professional societies to do the advocating for us. But it sounds like what you're saying is you've got to do it sort of on a on a personal level as well, or at least in your own, maybe in your own hospital, in your own lab. Yes, that, and in your own community with your own schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The healthcare careers, the, the college careers, anytime there's a high school that says there's a career fair, I always volunteer and I try to get my colleagues to volunteer. And if there's a college that's, you know, going to a, a career fair, then I'll tell them I also would like to support them and, and be there as a professional working in the field. So it's very important on all levels. I wonder, though, like. Because, you know, we talk about how people don't hear about these lab careers and it's like, how did we get to this point? How did this happen? Like, I I mean, I don't expect you to have the answer to that, but do you you have any thoughts on that? Like, how did it get to the, the point that we're pretty much unknown? I'll tell you, I went to a STEM conference that they had and they invited a lot of high school and college, you know, professionals and teachers and educators And it was amazing how there was a disconnect between the high school and the colleges. And the colleges were complaining that they wanted to be graduating their chemistry and their biology degree students to get into clinical lab science. And I basically brought up the fact that you have clinical laboratory science programs in your institutions or neighboring colleges. That's where those students should be going and graduate with clinical lab science and don't have them restricted in a biochemistry major. That's not fair to the student. And the high school teachers just clapped for me. So my concern is within our curriculums, the colleges need to support clinical laboratory science and promote clinical laboratory science. And apparently they're doing more for the liberal arts. And every degree, every career has the right pathway to take. And for us, it's clinical laboratory science pathway is the best for these students. And never limit a a student into a a curriculum that's not going to get them the best options when they graduate. So we need to get more clinical laboratory science, I think, on boards at the colleges. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Throughout your career, you must have seen the many changes in the lab field. Yes. I mean, sometimes we call them like the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, <laughs> okay. uh, and I... over the years, you know, laboratory medicine has never, unfortunately, never fully achieved this focus that it deserves in the healthcare field until hopefully now, unfortunately now because of the pandemic. But over the years, I can tell you as a laboratory professional starting out, we were so many times incorrectly told that our career is going to be short-lived. And mostly, I think, due again to not enough knowledge of us in the media, in the public, 
even our own medical colleagues in the industry and the government, they're not familiar with us and the importance that we contribute to healthcare. So there were two major changes in healthcare in particular, which were introduced while I was um, becoming a laboratory uh, colleague. And they were like bad negative impacts, they said, on the field. And one was automation. And they said, once automation came in, everything, you just push a button on a machine. Well, machines are not in the laboratory medicine field. Machines are manual laborers. You need cognitive independent judgment. The medical laboratory professionals function with that cognitive independent judgment. They function with sophisticated instruments. And my students and my colleagues learned early in the game, you don't call them machines, they're instruments. And automation is not bad, it's good. It's a critical tool and it assists the laboratory. It aids the laboratory professional in performing their work and not having to do the, the tedious and you know more manually um, driven, driven, driven positions. So automation is a critical tool and it does assist the laboratory professional. And it's misguided by simply pushing a button. It means no different than a nurse hands out a bedpan or a pharmacist counts pills. There's so much more to what the laboratory technologist is doing. The, you know, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, when automation came out, they came out with the fact that increasing automation and use of computer technology, the work of technologists and technicians has become less hands-on and more analytical. The complexity of tests performed is a level of judgment needed. And it depends on education and experience. So that was great. So automation was not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's just the perception of it has hurt us because people think we just push buttons and that's not what we do. I think that perception is still around too, isn't it? It's still around. That's why I said don't use the words machines. Use the word instrumentation. It's sophisticated in their interface with computers. Mm-hmm. The DRGs, when I was um, early in my career too, the DRGs, was again, the bad and the good. The good thing was it came about this insurance reimbursement and it reduced the unnecessary ordering of a lot of tests. But the bad was that it brought the laboratory from totally revenue to totally cost containment. And when it was instituted, there was so much talk of how staff would be reduced and and jobs would be lost. Despite the DRGs, despite the, the perceptions of automation, Today, the laboratories have survived and the laboratory professionals have survived these perception setbacks. If anything, today, the real challenge of the pandemic, we're in short, short staffing and short, you know, staffing of personnel. So it's been the opposite. Um, Today, the real challenge is the pandemic and handling of the crisis in, in a corporate healthcare today. But on the positive side, Dennis, there's positive good things that happened in the changes over these years, too. And one thing that was very good was the media attention of public awareness is improving. And it's only been recent, but it's bringing the laboratory from behind those walls out to the public. And you're seeing articles now in local and national papers. Uh, The Washington Post just had one recently. You'll see a lot of local and national media television coverage like Fox and CNBC and MSNBC and many others. So that's a good thing. Another really good challenge and change over the years has been the value of laboratory. The direct patient care is now including the laboratory. It's doing that to reduce pre-analytical ordering errors. That's where most of your errors occur, pre-analytical, as well as clarifying for post-analytical for interpretation of results for correct diagnosis. And that's the DCLS. That's the Doctor of Clinical Laboratory Science. Mm -hmm. And that has become recognized as a team member in what's known as DMTs. And those are the diagnostic management teams in healthcare. So this is an excellent progression of the profession. And to be honest, when it first started, I thought, you know, we have enough problems with the media attention and public awareness and the lack of it. Now we're going to have a PhD, <laughs> but it's been a great prog- a progression for the laboratory to have our laboratory professionals coming to direct patient contact and direct patient care. Yes, exactly. And I guess the ugly would always be the delay, the cuts that we get. <laughs> you know, there's major deep payment cuts have always been proposed to clinical laboratory fee schedules, and that's under the PAMA. 
And the good thing is, though, despite these ugly cuts, there's been tremendous lobbying over the years and just recently by professional societies, by laboratory professionals. All you have to do is place a phone call or send an email to your constituent. And we recently convinced the U.S. Senate by bipartisan support, which is unheard of today, (laughs) to delay these cuts to the laboratory. And that's that Protecting Access to Medicare Act. And we we were able to stop the cuts. So that gives us some hope. And that's a good change over the years. Mm-hmm. Can we can we talk about that one a little bit? Because th- this is a really good example, because I know advocacy is what you're all about. And this is a really good example of how that works, because there were a lot of professional societies that were behind this. ASCP is behind it. ASCLS was behind it. I think even the AMA. So can, can we talk about this a little bit? Like what what was this uh, bill, I guess now law, about? Well, it came out in 2014 that they wanted to make major cuts to the laboratory. And those major cuts to the laboratory would impact on staffing more than ever. It would impact on the laboratory producing results and reporting on results. We were very fortunate to have these deep cuts. Actually, they weren't stopped. They've just been proposed to be delayed. So the delay is what came recently, and that was a great accomplishment for us to delay these cuts. And since then, we also have to have other laws, and that's what's very critical, is that with these um, delayed cuts to the laboratory, the new focus then came on protecting the Medicare and the American farmers from the Sequester Cuts Act. And that would also delay cuts under PAMA until January 2023. And that just went into law as was 11771 on December 10th, and it was Senate law number 610. This is a tremendous way of trying to reach a more permanent solution. So this bipartisan support has taken to mitigate the harmful impacts of PAMA cuts. And it also includes passage of a laboratory access for beneficiaries act. And it more recently now, besides delaying the cuts and the data reporting is part of the 2020 coronavirus aid relief and economic security cares act. So we have a momentum going and we need to just as a society say, push harder and work harder to have these laws protect the laboratory and in turn protect the public that we serve. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the lab has gotten so much attention over the past, I guess it's been almost two years now, and, you know, not to t- take advantage of something as terrible as the pandemic, but, with, you know, take advantage of the attention that we've gotten and, and keep making more progress. Definitely, because I don't think people realize when you hear even, you know, higher up administration saying test, 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 test. Those of us in the laboratory saying who's doing the testing and with what reagents and what kits, you know, we need supplies and we need staffing. We need people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They don't seem to think about those other things. It's just, yeah, more tests, more tests. It's that push that button. They think (laughs) Mm -hmm. you're a clinical advisor for several colleges and I'm curious, I, I mean, I, I think I understand why you do this, because you like to advocate and you like to kind of pass this on to the next generation. But how did you get involved in this particular role? That's interesting, because it started when I first graduated from college, believe it or not. Oh, wow. And okay. I noticed every time that I was involved in a bench you know, position, every time I came in to see where I was assigned for that day, I was somehow always assigned to where there was a student. And I thought, well, all these laboratory professionals going to be evaluating me and watching me and see how I, what I know and how I educate the new students. And instead, a lot of them were senior and they had forgotten a lot of what they were doing. They were just becoming more robotic, which is not good. And they loved listening to me who was just graduated from college and like a sponge with all this information in my head, just talking to the new students and explaining to them everything that we were doing in the laboratory with the instrument. And, um, It got to the point where they noticed I loved teaching and I could work and talk and chew gum at the same time that I could do my work and talk to a student and assist a student that the education coordinator at the time said to help her and be more like an affiliate with her. So I was a bench technologist helping the education coordinator. And then I became a supervisor still helping the education coordinator. And when she um, had passed, the um, education coordinator position 
somehow came into my administrative office. So it followed me up from being a graduate. And I love teaching students because I think it's a two-way street and it's a win-win. You know, you have, during your internship, you're also, with the learning process, you're also having an interview process. So you're educating students that ask questions. And when they ask questions, it keeps everything fresh in your mind. And as you're mentoring and you're educating and teaching them, you're also watching and observing how they are in the workplace that as soon as they graduate, we're hiring our students. And we were very fortunate to have laboratory leadership support the clinical internship program. And we had colleagues that love to teach. And we rarely had issues of staffing because as soon as students graduated, we hired them. It's a two-way street and it's a win-win situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you're definitely right. You know, teaching, I forget how the, the exact wording of the phrase, but it's something like if you want to learn something, the, the best way to learn to know something really well is to teach it. It's something, yes. something like that. Yes, you're right. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Let's talk about licensure now. You were the chair of the Professional Standards Coalition, which is the uh, committee that helped to establish licensure of clinical lab staff in the state of New York. So the first thing about licensure now, I've, and I, and I kind of want to, I want to get into the sort of the story of how this all came together. But when you talk about licensure, some people say, you know, this is just a government money grab. It's just a way for the government mm-hmm. to get more money from me. I already have to pay my membership dues. Why do I have to pay for a license and all of that? I know it's a shame um, because yeah. to belong to a professional society, yes, there's a fee, mm-hmm. but you have to think of everything you get out of it to belong, to have a license. Yes, there's a fee, but you have to think about everything you get out of it to go back to um, when I was first approached, I actually said, I wasn't sure what I could possibly do. <laughs> and somehow within a few years, I became a co-chair. Okay. But what I loved about it is that they brought to my attention, which is true. You have hairdressers are licensed. You have interior decorators that are licensed. You have dog groomers that are licensed. And every medical profession, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, PAs, therapists, they're all licensed. They have that right to practice their profession in, in every state. Yet the medical professionals who perform and manage regulatory compliance of quality standards of laboratory testing for patient care are not licensed. Um, way back in 1995, the federal NRLB, the National Labor Relations Board, They determined that medical laboratories technologists were indeed professional. They determined that we engage in work that is predominantly intellectual and vary the outcome, not standardized, and it requires a specific advanced body of knowledge. That made us so thrilled that we were finally recognized as professionals. But without licensure, we were not in every stage the right to practice. Federal clear appropriately maintains the importance of quality standards of laboratory testing. Yet the federal clear quality of personnel standards do not match the quality standards of laboratory testing. So every state can be equal to or greater than clear. And that's where the momentum was gained that state licensure needed to be in every state. So in New York state, the PSSCLP, Professional Standards Coalition for Clinical Laboratory Personnel, they became the unprecedented coalition of 23 professional societies and unions. These were bench techs, supervisors, educators, administrators. They all came together and they all came together because they wanted the medical laboratory professional to be licensed. They, we had buttons, um, you know, I'm a med tech for the health of it. We had stickers, bumper stickers. Your life depends on licensed clinical laboratory techs. We had corporations supported us with flyers, save lives, save dollars. And we had unions with lobbying. And we had petitions. And the petitions were signed by bench techs, supervisors, even administrators. And the reason is this. To clarify, we call it like the Magnificent Seven. These are the advantages of supporting licensure. You have an entry-level standard established. You have a body of knowledge determined. You have a full scope of practice set. It's issued to ensure health, safety, and welfare of the general public. And it's required to be able to work in a field of study. It's referred to as the right to practice. 
and it enforces disciplinary action. So this is all from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the HRSA. And just to clarify, because a lot of people get confused, board certification is great. It's a national standard exam of personnel professionally recognized, but it's not mandatory by any law to work. Licensure is that right to practice. That's government recognized. They generally use the board certification exam, and that's where you're mandated by law to work. So all medical professionals are board certified technologists, technicians. They all deserve the same media attention public awareness, industry respect, legislative support afforded all other medical professionals like doctors and nurses and pharmacists and PAs, but we don't have licensure in every state. And laboratory professionals need to come to the table and have a voice. One great example, Dennis, is that federal Title VII, it's a Public Health Service Act, it involves federal funds education for healthcare professions but it has to include the clinical laboratory also. The major concern today with all the shortages is that they're lowering personnel requirements to address severe shortages. That's not maintaining quality standards, right? I mean, a few years ago, Rhode Island lost their licensure. Pharmaceutical companies lobbied against licensure. And then this past year, Georgia lost facility licensure. And Tennessee personnel licensure is no longer mandatory. That just happened this past year because you had healthcare corporations and reference labs convincing the government that anyone can be trained to become a laboratory professional. You know, when licensure was first implemented in New York State, we had a significant increase in enrollments in the colleges that offered the clinical laboratory science program. It attracted the applicants into our field because it's a licensed profession. You can't become a nurse, you can't become a doctor, you can't become a pharmacist or a PA without a designated degree and license. So why not the same for laboratory professionals? And yes, what you're saying is true. There's those who oppose and they express concern that licensure may sometimes inadvertently disenfranchise. And if that is the case, then we need to review licensure to revise licensure, not to revoke licensure. We don't want to lower standards or compromise standards, but we need to improve standards to align with the needs of the profession and professional. I have a a great example to give you. There was constructive feedback within the last year that New York State did not accept the ASCP International. And we was brought to the board and the board reviewed it and brought it further to the board. And they made a decision that New York State could and would accept ASCP International. This brought in the international students to assist with out-of-state hiring. So, again, the whole issue is we should have licensure in every state, and then licensure should be reviewed to revise and and not, not support it and not revoke it. There are major shortages, you know, in nursing. But they're not lowering Mm -hmm. standards, right? You don't hear, let's revoke licensure for nurses. Never, ever, ever do they discuss lowering standards for nurses and revoking licensure. Instead, their focus is on how do we attract? How do we recruit? How do we retain? And we deserve no less as laboratory professionals. The public deserves no less. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. You're right about about the nursing shortage. They don't. No, you never hear about them wanting to lower the standards. No, I've heard stories. You know where they're trying to revise some of their licensure. And there's one thing that we're looking at, even in um, the professions for laboratories, endorsement from state to state. But there's no real good reason why we can't be licensed in every state. We're professionals. We have that body of knowledge, that scope of practice. And there's no reason why we we don't have a right to practice in every state. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this kind of begs the question, and I, I guess I don't really expect you to have the answer to this one. But like you said, doctors have to be licensed. Nurses have to be licensed. Like, why wasn't it like this for laboratory professionals from the beginning? I think sometimes we're, um, it's because of the perception. You know, you're in the laboratory and maybe you just push buttons. I also heard stories where a lot of people thought we were 
I mean, in, in Europe, you're a doctor most times if you're working. We have doctors from other countries in the laboratory that couldn't pass their boards mm-hmm. in, in America. But I think part of the problem was we were very big on our board certification. And since we're seen as professionals by certification and even NRLB said we're professionals, nobody thought about the licensure part of it. And that could hurt us in the end because if you're not state licensed with that scope of practice and that right to practice in your state, the licensing benefits the licensee. It benefits the profession, the professional, and ultimately the public we serve. So it, we're going in the wrong direction right now with licensure. We need our laboratory professionals to get the corporations and to get the government to see that we ought to be licensed in each state for that right to practice as laboratory professionals. Let's go then specifically to the New York licensure. Now, from the beginning of this, or at least from the beginning of your involvement in it, was this intended to be just for clinical laboratory scientists or was it for like all lab positions? I mean, histotechs, cytotechs, pathologists, assistants, all of that. Well, that basically is part of, I think, the question you just asked me that you just brought about. We're so diversified with specialties. Mm-hmm. And when we first started, we had his, we had, the Pro- Professional Standards Coalition included histotechs and cytotechs and all generalists. And we all wanted to be licensed in each of our categories. But they explained to us, the government, that we had so many specialties where a doctor and nurse specializes after they get their generalist. So we had to kind of go the route of how other medical professionals are also licensed to keep consistent with licensure in general. But we're a very diversified field pathology and laboratory medicine. So we do have licenses and permits and we do have the technologists and the cytotechnologists and the technician. And they added on the histological technician. We have, you know, the limited permits, provisional permits, restricted permits. We're always looking to improve and to move forward. But the best thing the licensure did for us is that generalist license means when you graduate, you have more diversified areas. It helped me tremendously in my hospital where in histology we were having trouble hiring. And now we had generalists come in who we originally thought could only be hematology, chemistry, and blood bank, you know, in micro. Well, now they were coming into, I want to work in histology. It's Monday to Friday. You know, it wasn't weekends or it was not holidays. So it opened up the marketing for us by having licensure also. Okay, I see. And I think that's kind of the way it, it's, it works in other countries too, like histology and, and cytology are not separate from the clinical lab uh, as far as positions or even education. Right. But in this country, it is. So licensure mm-hmm. had to bring about, you know, cytotechnologist as a separate license and the histotechnician as a separate license. It's been overwhelming for the states because we're so diversified here with so many different categories of our profession. Right. But we, we work through it. We work through it very well and we're still working through it with constructive feedback, you know, with the professional societies and with the um, the profession we're always, again, trying to review to revise. You don't want to revoke. And in other states, we're trying to assist them that they can get their license also. That right to practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've heard that you, kind of what happened in New York has kind of been sort of a template for doing it in, in other states. Yes. Do you think that whole process kind of went as planned or you know it seems like maybe there were a kind of a few hiccups along the way and like you said you know constantly looking at things that need to be updated or revised it's been a challenge to become licensed it's been a challenge to to remain licensed and again as you talked about before it's the concern is our own laboratory professionals have to support it and there's a lot of us that do, but those that don't are hurting the profession and they don't realize it. Um, and again, if there's some people that would disenfranchise, then either they need to find out what curriculum course they need or what course they need to take to get licensed, or they need to give feedback so we can review and revise. And we did that recently with the international ASCPI that we finally accepted mm-hmm. in New York state and that brought in our international students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's definitely a, a big win there. Okay, this is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Angela Tomei Robinson. We'll be right back. 
Labvine has recently reached 5,000 members and they're running a Lucky Draw giveaway to celebrate. All you need to do to enter is refer a friend. So log into Labvine, click the refer a friend button and enter their name and email address. Now, there is no limit to how many people you can refer, but each person has to be either a laboratory professional or someone who works in the healthcare field. And if you're not already a LabVine member, you can follow the link in the show notes to sign up and check out some of the great courses that they have to offer. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Angela Tomei Robinson on the People of Pathology podcast. Something else that you that you advocate for a lot is having lab professionals join and, and be active in professional societies. So tell yes. me about this. Why, why is this important? Well, you know, we talked about nursing a lot and nurses not only have visibility, which we don't, and they also have licensure in every state, which we don't, but they also have strong professional membership. They have over 90 percent where we don't. So we lack visibility. We lack licensure in every state. And now we lack membership numbers. The professional societies tell me their membership numbers are about 50 percent. So to get one strong voice and collaborate with all the professional societies, you need membership. I always tell everyone, belong to the society doing the talking for you. Be involved. At least be a member. And, and their membership brings so much. There's so many accomplishments that the professional societies are doing. There's documentations they create. There's surveys. There's position papers. Um, for example, our identification issue is that we, a nurse is a nurse, a doctor is a doctor, a pharmacist is a pharmacist, but the medical laboratory professionals have so many categories and within those categories, so many different names. So they're trying to standardize the professional title of medical laboratory professional and ASCLS and ASCP came together with the medical laboratory scientists and the medical laboratory technician if you're board certified. So that's one thing they're looking at to try to help us. All this is in covid there's updates and alerts that the professional society gives you that I'm giving to a lot of my colleagues that are not members that are not aware. Do you know there's links to notify if you have supply shortages? And, you know, those of us professional membership, we get alerts all the time and others are not aware of it. I, another great example is last year, there was a college education board in Hawaii that was going to close the clinical laboratory science curriculum that was desperately needed. The professional societies worked together and collaborated and it was slated to be closed and it was not, it was saved. They saved a college. And as we talked about recently is the PAMR, the delayed cuts in the laboratory. It was the professional societies out there with their lobbying and their, you know, emails and their calls and promoting to pass the bill, which finally got passed. So that was a great, great, you know, momentum, as I said, and we need to push even harder. But professional societies and their members, they're involved in everything, everything from media attention to legislative lobbying. And the professional society, societies, again, though, Dennis, are only as strong as their numbers. They need everyone. They need one strong voice. How do you expect us to acquire the media attention, the public awareness or the industry respect, the government support without strong membership? And that's one thing I always correlate. Nurses. Yes, they have visibility, but they also have licensure and they have membership support in strong numbers. Laboratories behind the scenes, we don't have licensure in every state and we don't have strong membership. So we need our professional people to be more active and more involved and at least be, be a member of a society. Yeah, I agree with that. It, your point about nurses having uh, the, the recognition and the numbers, that's important. Like, I, I, what are your thoughts about, because there's, you know, a professional society for each lab position. You know, you, you mentioned ASCLS, there's NSH for histotex, you know, for me being a pathologist assistant, there's AAPA. What are your thoughts about these in order to get the numbers and therefore a bigger voice, having these professional societies kind of band together? I mean, everybody's sort of under ASCP, I, I, I guess a little bit, but what do you think about that? The one thing I, I really appreciate, and I understand everybody has their own AACC, you know, ASM. Mm -hmm. There's so many different professional yeah, societies. That's fine. 
as long as they all collaborate and work together. And you will see like for licensure, when Tennessee was about to lose its licensure, they band together the professional societies, but they're bringing to the board their numbers. And if each of them are showing, you know, low number of membership, it doesn't help us even as a collaboration. We need high membership. So I always tell professional laboratorians, join something. Um, I love the remark that one of my colleagues gave is, join the society that's doing the talking for you. So if you're not happy with the professional society you're in, then join another one. But don't don't not be a member of any society. You know what I'm saying? You have to be a, a member of some society and the societies then do collaborate and work together. And if you, you can investigate that, go on their websites and see what they're doing and who they're doing what with and when and how. And they're very, very, I, I love ASCLS um, because I think they, they're for of and by laboratory professionals. I've been an ASCP board certified since I graduated from college. So these are the organizations I'm very involved with. But there are many you know, wonderful professional societies out there. Belong to them. Be a member of them. And let them collaborate with the other professional societies to move our profession along, to get our profession into media attention and public awareness and industry respect and that you know, government recognition and lobbying support that we need. Mm -hmm. You have to belong. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, if, if you don't, it, it, you basically have no voice at all. Correct. Yeah. Okay. I want to go on a bit of a tangent right here because I, I heard, I heard you tell this story, a little bit of the story in, in a, somewhere else. And you mentioned that you had written a letter with, went to, to Regis Philbin back, back when he had his TV show and it ended up with you having an appearance on, on TV. Yes. All right. I, 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 always have, say, I, I have to hear about this. I always have to say, seize the opportunity. You know okay. how most television shows do not focus on laboratory professionals, right? R I mean, right. I think laboratory professionals need to become part of advisory committees on medical TV shows. I mean, the best we ever had years ago, I think was the Quincy MD where they showed an assistant that was a lab tech. Oh, yeah. But we need Hallmark and Lifetime movies. And, and we also need, um, well, recently, I know a TV show, Amsterdam, a lot of the techs were not happy how they were, de they were um, depicting the laboratory. So we told them, bombard them with emails and calls. And we did. And recently, the staff are telling me that they recently just positively in the positive light show the laboratory. So um, it's a good thing to, to, to be involved with what's going on in television. So, you know, this is one of my favorite scenarios and that's what motivated me to, to actually write to Regis. You watch any typical medical show plot, right? The ambulance is racing through the streets and the sirens are sounding and the lights are flashing. And then you get to the ER and the stretches rush through the corridors and you have the RN taking vital statistics and a PA taking vital statistics. And then you hear the MD command. I need a CBC. I need a CMP. I need a type and screen and I need it stat. And then you fade to commercial. <laughs> and they always say that's during that commercial is where everything is now taking place. All the real action behind the scene within right. the laboratory walls. I mean, the CDC has reported that over 70% of all medical decisions are determined from laboratory testing. So we don't need to fade to commercial. So how we began with Regis is he was on television complaining about all his medical problems. And I just wrote to him. I contacted him and said, are you aware that all the laboratory testing that you're undergoing are not conducted by anyone that's licensed? And he was just amazed. So he invited the group of the PSCCLP, the laboratory professionals going for licensure to be his personal guests. And we were on his show and he showed our licensure button on the air and he expressed concern that we were medical profession, not licensed in healthcare. And the same thing happened with the NBC Today show. They allowed the public to stand outside and be televised. So during National Lab Week, we would go there in numbers with our white lab coats and we finally got with lab week posters and, and signs and buttons. We got Al Mocha to interview us on the air with, with Katie Couric. So, yes, when you are in the limelight and you have a voice, sometimes the media does give you that attention. So we're very proud of, of those. I actually have a sign 
One of our lab we posters where Katie Couric said, lab technologies rock. <laughs> and Al Roker well, signed cool. it too. And Regis Philbin signed it. And Kathy Lee Gifford signed it. So, you know, we did a lot of the publicity we needed to go for licensure. And I tell everyone, it doesn't take much to pick up a phone or to write an email. I'm still doing it today with when I see a report in the news and they didn't mention the lab, I write to that reporter and they respond. And sometimes it brings about a media attention news article. And if anything, I'm bringing attention to that reporter. Next time you write about the hospital, think about the laboratory. Right. Right. Okay. And now this kind of transitions into something else that I know you, you like to do. You're very much like if, if the lab doesn't get any attention, you're going to bring the attention to the lab. Like you're not the kind of person that goes, well, they, they ignored us. So I guess we're just not invited and we just kind of go about our business. Like that's not what you're about. No. And I never have been. I mean, we discussed it other times where, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times in, in my profession, if they were annoyed with the administration at the time, their attitude was, oh, they're going to give us a free lunch and we're not going to go and we're going to boycott it. And that's the worst thing to do. I said, you go and you're vocal. And that story I've told many times is that we had employee appreciation and the lab decided they were going to boycott it, but they were so annoyed that I was the only one that was going to go, which meant it wasn't the whole lab. Well, be- before that occasion came, I convinced every single one of them to go. And we went and we had two to three large tables. We were loud and vocal every time one of us got our five-year, our 10-year, our 15-year. And so much so that we actually created our own awards for those that were 25 and 35 years. And we wound up getting written up in the hospital paper. And then we got written up in the local papers. So yes, I believe in laboratory advocacy. The whole idea is not to complain that we're not being recognized, is to bring the recognition to you. Today, of all times, as you know, Dennis, is the most challenging in healthcare, and particularly for the laboratory medicine. And um, unfortunately, over the years, we have not been able to attract the students we should be attracting or establish enough curriculum programs. But now with the large turnover of baby boomers retiring and with the pandemic, with burnout, the the shortages are just severe and exacerbated. I like to refer to the S factors. There's shortage of staffing, there's shortage of supplies, the salaries are not high enough. There's a lack of supportive workplaces and supportive management leadership. So now more than ever, Instead of retracting, I tell everyone now more than ever, we need laboratory advocacy. We need to attract and recruit future laboratory colleagues. We need to retain those qualified medical laboratory professionals with supportive, resourceful environments with compensation that's commensurate with your education, experience, knowledge, and skills. We need this now more than ever to get the media attention, to get the public awareness, to get the industry respect, to get that government support. But as you've said, too, sometimes the problem with our laboratory profession is that we become our own worst enemy. Too many resort to that chronic complaining instead of actively doing. And laboratory medicine is somewhat polarized. You'll probably notice yourself as a professional, there's a big difference when you're networking with successful professionals every day in your workplace or yeah. through professional societies, or even on linked or on laboratory leadership and career Facebook pages. But then you have those in your profession every day that are just distraught and disgruntled and upset with their career. Then you go on some laboratory Facebook pages and there's so much frustration and despair with the overwhelming challenges and the stress. And yes, venting definitely releases stress, but it's also a chronic negativity. And chronic negativity is a cancer and just it lends itself to more discouragement. So I I tell everyone, yes, the issues are real, but you have to maintain objectivity and you have to offer constructive feedback and then look for solutions to find resolutions. You know, they have that Charles Swindle saying life is 10 percent of what happens to you, 90 percent how you react. So I always say to my students when they come in and they hear, you know, professionals that are destroyed, I say, find out how long they've been doing this, 30 years, 40 years. Obviously, they're in the field that they love. They just have issues. 
And the new people, when they come in, I used to tell my boss, don't go showing them the doorknob if they don't like it. That was the saying. They know where the doorknob is. Their hand's already on that doorknob. So as professionals, we have to always be asking, what are we doing to make it a better profession? And I always say, ask why, and then ask why not. And then ask how and what can I do? So today, with those severe shortages and the healthcare corporation business challenges we're facing, we need to act more individually stronger and then together stronger. And these are some of the suggestions I'm giving as I'm trying to get out there with laboratory advocacy. Negotiate. There's competition for your supply and demand now. So negotiate with competition, supply and demand. And karma is when there's an exodus of competent staff elsewhere. And I've seen it. I've been through it. If you're not happy where you are, see where else you can go. There's so many opportunities out there. Mm -hmm. If you support unions, then make sure you're in the professional sector. The NRLB said that you're a professional. You have to be in the professional sector. Support your professional societies. Join to be part of collaboration and networking. There's so many national and chapters, as we talked about, and it enlightens you and it helps you. It releases the stress in a positive way, and then it gives you opportunities and options. And become board certified. That's a great standard professionally, but then use that well-deserved title after your name and support licensure of you as a professional. Life, as I said, licensure safeguards the professional, it safeguards the profession, and it ultimately safeguards the public that we serve. And finally, I would say be a laboratory advocate. Be active in your career, in your daily surroundings, and extend it out to outreach opportunities. The big issue is that too many continue to be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. Become part of the difference. And there's those of us, and I always say too few doing too much. We need everyone's support and everyone's help. So basically, despite the overwhelming challenges, focus and and claim the opportunities. You know, Dennis, doing nothing will accomplish exactly nothing. But doing something will at least give a chance to accomplish something. And, And they can do it on a small scale. You can be proactive at your facility, even on just daily interactions with other medical professionals and with the public. Or you can do it on a larger scale, contacting your representatives, contacting your media and newspapers and TV shows. And those that are in laboratory leadership, we always tell them, bring the laboratory advocacy to the C-suite. Have a place at the table and have a voice. But also stay in communications in the trenches with your staff. That's what I loved in my associate admin position. I was part of administration, but I was very close to the staff. And I still had a, you know, an umbilical cord, they would say, to the staff at all times. So we need to represent our profession at and on every level. And we need everyone. Um, I'm not sure if you know, but that NRLB decision, that a laboratory technologists are professionals, that was started by one medical laboratory tech who insisted his union should include him as a professional. One person started that and the collaboration of professional societies backed him and it was a great, great federal decision. And as I talked about with the coalition in New York State, it was such a collaboration of so many. And we gained bipartisan support in our state with our governor and our senators and representatives. And it was everyone, scientists, technologists, technicians. They all believe that the profession had the right and deserved the right to be licensed to practice their profession. Um, I I recently was involved with an article for ASCLS, and I said professionalism is both a science and an art. It needs us individually as well as together for that one strong voice. And I've always believed, Dennis, that one individual can make a difference, but a group of individuals can make all the difference in the world. And despite the challenges today and their severe challenges, I still believe this because, again, it's better to do something to do, than to do nothing. Right. Yeah, I love this. This is th- these are great ideas. This is this is great advice. And these and really your examples. I mean, it's true. One person, even if you do the kind of the smallest thing to advocate for your profession, I mean that that can have a snowball effect that can cause great things to change later on. Definitely, and we've seen it. Yeah, yeah, we have. 
Okay. The last thing I want to ask you about then is these days you're kind of out of the lab for, I guess, for the most part, but you're an advisory consultant. Yes. I'm sorry. So tell me about that. What, what do you, what do you do in that role? Well, what I've been doing in the last year now that I, I took an early retirement is I'm authoring articles and being published. I'm speaking um, mostly Zoom because of the pandemic, but I've been on town mm-hmm. meetings and conferences and health fairs and, and podcasts such as yours. And I'm very honored to be here. I've also been on a lot of social media platforms, networking and mentoring. And as a consultant, I'm helping some of the laboratories to get the standards they need for CLIA, DOH, Joint and CAP. I work with a lot of professionals, helping them with job opportunities and um, in their jobs for options of mobility. And recently, I helped CAP with a lab inspection. And, and recently, I'm also helping an LIS upgrade for pathology department as a program manager. And then on my spare time, I'm always doing laboratory advocacy. So um, again, I always believe it's so critical to get the word out from behind the walls out to the public that we serve. Again, as I've said over and over, laboratory is very challenging today, and it's challenging in this challenging healthcare, corporate challenging world, but there are opportunities out there, and we need to keep patient care as the main focus in healthcare. And honestly, healthcare needs qualified medical laboratory professionals. The patients need qualified medical laboratory professionals, and I always tell everyone the quality standards of laboratory testing and quality standards of personnel is not expensive. Quality is always priceless. Yep. That's absolutely true. You know, Angela, you are, you're, it's very inspiring to to talk with you. Like I want to go out and start <laughs> doing some of these things. I mean, you're, you're a great example of being an advocate for the laboratory profession. I really appreciate the, Thank you, your, your, your time. And it's been, it's been wonderful to speak with you. So Angela Tomei Robinson, Thank you very much. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate this. Hoping to motivate and inspire. Great big thanks to Angela Tomei Robinson. Here's a preview from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. And so I found by joining professional organizations, I've been able to uh, see or have uh, a broader perspective of, of, say, uh, of what's going on in our field, what's happening across laboratories across the board educational programs across the board and you know being at the table to kind of have those think tanks i would say and trying to think of ways or opportunities that we can gain more visibility or provide more solutions to those issues has um really i think has made the work more meaningful for me so i always encourage people like hey you know plug in so that way you can be a part of these key and very crucial conversations but also networking is really important Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're meeting other people in other areas because you just never know when and where you're going to cross paths again. You can hear more from Dana Powell Baker in episode 42. All right. So really inspiring conversation with Angela today. She gave some really good practical examples of how you can advocate for your lab profession, no matter which one of the lab professions you're in. And really, if you're helping any part of the lab, you're helping all of us anyways. And hopefully you can see by Angela's own experiences, I mean, this stuff actually works. And I'll give you an even more recent example. A couple of weeks ago, Angela saw an article on LinkedIn that was called Top Voices in Healthcare. And it just so happened that there was not a single person from pathology or laboratory medicine on the list. So Angela shared that article with a bunch of people, and I happen to be one of them. And somebody actually sent a message to the author And he responded saying, we will definitely keep an eye out for insightful posts from the laboratory medicine community for future lists. So I hope you can see this stuff really does work, or as Angela likes to say, better to try and do something than just complain and do nothing. I'll have links to a lot of Angela's work in the show notes. I think you'll definitely want to check that out. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.